Amen. I don't know that I have sung that one, but it's wonderful. Uh, if I have sung it, it was, uh, I guess I just didn't realize. Didn't realize what was going on when I sung it. This morning, we're going back to Acts chapter 13, and we're, we're kind of finishing where we left off last week. Finishing up the chapter. Uh, Aaron and I watch from time to time, not so much anymore because they force us to watch commercials, but uh, a show on Food Network called Chopped. And you know Chopped is a competition where you have a time limit and they give you random ingredients, and some of them are pretty obscure. Uh, sometimes the contestants will actually take one of the ingredients, usually like the main protein, the main meat or whatever it is, and they'll serve it two ways. I don't know if it's just to impress the judges that they did that in such a short amount of time, but they'll serve it two ways. So, for instance, the ingredient may be a turkey neck, and they're going to serve turkey neck two ways. So they'll present it to the judges as turkey neck two ways. Now, what I want to tell you about today is really mission two ways. Mission two ways. Where we left off, Paul and Barnabas had now been sent from Antioch in Syria. They've gone to Cyprus. They've made their way back to mainland and what is modern-day Turkey that trekked up, you know, treacherous territory in order to make it to Antioch and Pisidia. And they had the opportunity. It appears that the Holy Spirit sort of just arranged this event where they in the synagogue would have the chance to speak about Jesus and Paul and Barnabas spoke about Jesus. They gave a, a Christ-looking sermon from the history of Israel and then presented Jesus as the fulfillment of all the things that the Jews had hoped for, all the things that the Jews were promised. And now we see, as we concluded last week, verse 42 tells us they, they finished up there. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They begged, hey, come back, and, come back and talk about this. Come back and tell us these things. Now let's keep going. Let's keep going with that. Verse 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution 
against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray once more. Father, uh, Father, we, we can't understand your word without the help of your Holy Spirit. So send him, send us clearly, that we may look like him more and more. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mission two ways. Mission two ways. What I, what I mean by mission two ways is that we kind of started last week talking about there's, there's two things at work when we're, when we're looking at Acts. We're, we're looking at how the church is working, uh, how the church operates, how the church goes on mission, how the church preaches the gospel, makes disciples. But at the same time, we have the opportunity in the preaching of the word to preach the gospel to those who have yet to believe. And so there's really two things working in the text. We're learning But then there's lost people that are being evangelized. Now, the reality is some of those lost people may be some of our children. Our children are going to come, hopefully, to the knowledge of Christ. We've been building up this framework framework in all of the passages of Scripture and the truths and the catechisms that they have memorized and, and have become sort of just maybe lodged in their hearts and minds, we pray that eventually the gospel would become clear to them and they begin to to fill that house with the treasure of Christ, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of worship, the treasure of a life lived to the glory of God. So there's mission really happening two ways. That's simply how we're proceeding today. I'll give you this theme for today. The unleashed gospel does unstoppable work. The unleashed gospel does unstoppable work. We concluded last week talking about the gospel unleashed, and so we're picking up with that idea, seeing the responses of these people. So let's look at mission two ways. Let's look at mission two ways. The first way, as a missionary. The first way, as a missionary. And I'll just begin with this. I posted this to some of us in a, in a group message this week, but Spurgeon was once quoted as saying, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So consider that. If we walk through these next few points and you have zero burden to make the gospel known to your neighbor, your coworker, the person at the store, or the person who does your hair, or whatever. You have zero burden for that. You have no inkling inside of you. Then I would question, are you actually a Christian? Or is the gospel just something that you feel like, oh, it's just for me, and I'm going to keep all this to myself? I would submit to you that based on the word of God, you can't possibly be a Christian, and not have this burden to make the gospel known to the lost. So I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this text as a missionary and be empowered and motivated on mission. I'll give you four instructions from the text. So first way, as a missionary. Number one, first uh, first of four instructions, urge hearers 
toward God's grace. You see that in verse 43? This is what these people are following Paul and Barnabas, and, and their response was, believe. Receive the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So you see what's happening? The listeners in the synagogue, they turned from begging to hear more about Jesus to now following Paul and Barnabas around. It may be likened to John 2, this John 2 type of faith. It tells us in John 2 that people follow Jesus. And it says that they believed. It used the word believe. But then it said Jesus himself did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. Now, maybe this kind of belief, and it's revealed that it, it is this kind of, of faith. They wanted, to, they wanted to hear more of what was being said. People followed Jesus because of the things that he could do, the things that were attracting their attention. Ultimately, their faith was revealed to be a false faith. Ultimately, it was revealed that their so-called faith had selfish motives. It was self-serving. So if you're looking for entertainment, if you're looking for a problem to be solved, if you're looking for faith to get you out of some circumstances, then I think you're, you're liable to end up giving up on the true gospel of Jesus Christ, revealing a false conversion. Yet the gospel has a way of discerning hearts. This is what is happening as the word was preached here. This is what happens. You see the word do its work. Hebrews 4.12. You know the verse. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when the, when the word is preached, people are intrigued. But in the end, they will be forced to make a decision in regard to Christ. And so you almost get the picture of the word of God being uh, surgically, that's the word there, a two-edged sword. It's like a, a, a surgeon's knife, carefully dividing us up. And whether you like it or not, the word of God, if you're listening to the word of God at any point, it is doing a work. But what's revealed in some is not a desirable kind of response. If you look into the, the broader context of Hebrews, you'll see that Hebrews in itself is really an urging. It's urging people toward God's grace. Hebrews is written, obviously, to people who are familiar with Jewish history. Jews are the target and the, the writer is constantly like, hey, go ahead and cross the line. Go ahead and get past like just kind of dabbling in the community of the church. Get past sort of dabbling in, in, in salvation or, or faith. Dabbling in singing the songs. And I can imagine, I don't, I don't remember, I was young. I was young when I was lost. So I, I probably just singing because everybody else sung. But I wonder if there's a tension in the heart of the unbeliever who sits among the saints of God and is like, uh, do, I, do I sing this? I'm not sure. There's a tension there. I believe there ought to be a tension there. Hebrews is one of those books that's written that says, hey, just go ahead and take the plunge. Like, believe on him and be saved. 
Paul and Barnabas here, they're urging them to continue in the grace of God. And much like the message of Hebrews, hey, you have to let go. You have to let go of your traditions, what you thought was salvation, what you thought you were supposed to do. Christian, I could, I could liken it to your story. When the gospel landed on you in a saving way and you realized the futility of your thoughts about God and making him happy and appeasing him, doing enough good things, I, I, I shudder at the thought of how many in our world and even many within our churches that have the idea that I'm here to sort of do good things and God's happy with me going to church and being nice to people and loving folks and giving money to the person on the street corner. And their idea about salvation is, well, let me just make sure my good, my good acts, my good thoughts, my good whatever weighs, weighs more than my bad. That's the recipe for hell. Urging to continue in the grace of God is the recognition that it's by God's grace that you are hearing the word of God and the call is abandon all the thoughts that you had. Ultimately, hearers must encounter this thought. Will I continue in my warped ideas of salvation or will I fall humbly, repentantly on the grace of God? and received his free gift of salvation. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You properly understand the law, then you see a desperate need of Christ. Urge hearers to that grace. You could say, like Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5, I'm not going to read it all, but 11 through 21, he repeats these words, persuading, appealing, imploring. This is what we must do. Christians on mission urge people to continue in the grace of God. Secondly, <clears throat> rest in God's saving work. Rest in God's saving work. See this from the next few verses. Rest in God's saving work. And, and I, as I wrote this point, I was like, man, it seems like I'm just repeating myself. And I guess as a faithful preacher of the word, you got to be comfortable with just repeating the same things over and over again. It's that old, old story, right? That's so wonderful to us. But this point it feels like I've made this point multiple times already in the book of Acts. Rest in God's saving work. You know what we do? We sit back and we overthink everything. We overthink everything. We go through all the scenarios on mission of, you know, what might happen. In reality, we have to continue to practice resting letting that unleashed gospel do its unstoppable work. So you see what's happening? Nearly all of Pisidian Antioch shows up the next Sabbath day at the synagogue. I don't know what this is like, but man, it must be something. 
You know, we live in proximity to Memphis. Memphis, as long as I've been in ministry, has been referred to by many as the land of 3,000 churches. And uh, we often think about, like, man, there's so many churches, a church on every corner. But did you know, even, even in DeSoto County, if everybody in DeSoto County decided on a Sunday that they were going to show up at church, there is no way that all the church buildings in our entire county could hold them. It gives you a little more perspective on how many people care nothing for the church, either because they don't believe or they're so immature that they just refuse to gather. The whole city nearly shows up. And word had gotten around, Pole Hill suggests, that the message of salvation was not just for Jews, but also Gentiles. You remember the way Paul of Barnabas spoke. He said, uh, to you, speaking to the Jews and those who fear God. We learned about the Ethiopian eunuch was one that feared God. And that fear of God led him to Christ. So it seems like word had gotten around that the gospel is not just for Jews, but also Gentiles. And it means that Jews and Jewish converts at this point in the synagogue were way outnumbered. And what did that do to them? Hey, these guys, they were here to preach to us. They were here to comment about the law and the prophets to us. What are all these people, not just people, what are all these second-class people, these unclean people, these people who do not deserve the word of God? That is what they're thinking. They see all these Gentiles, and they are provoked to jealousy. Why would they get to hear about things pertaining to the promise that was given to us? And you see that self-righteous indignance showing up. You know, they're hung up on their own status. And because of that, they refuse to accept even the concept of grace. And they refuse to accept the people, all the people to whom grace is being offered. And yet, we missionaries, we got to rest. We got to rest in what, what God is doing to save people. Unfortunately, when the word of God is preached, some self-righteous hearers only dig in deeper. They only claw against God harder. And if the word is, is ramming up against calloused hearts, something will eventually give. So Paul and Barnabas' words then cut right to the core of the, the Jews' prideful unbelief. They say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Now understand this, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17 tells us this in, in no uncertain terms. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. Anyone who believes then he says, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. If you want to go back the way that Jesus talked about it, one of my favorite stories you know, the, the Syrophoenician woman that wants the crumbs from the table of the Lord. And, and Jesus' response to her, 
he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he proceeds to call her a dog. Now, we'll talk about that another day, okay? So, Paul is operating, and Jesus was operating. Hey, this promise, initially, it is for the Jews. And Paul is going to the synagogues because he's not going to let that opportunity to preach the gospel, the promise, the fulfillment to the people who were so supposedly desperate for it first. So that's why he says, look, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. And Paul doesn't belabor the point. He doesn't, he doesn't get stuck on arguing with the Jews. It's almost like he anticipates their unbelief by recalling the prophetic word about their unbelief. I want to say this, and I want to say this carefully. Take this cautiously. Sometimes on mission, the word must be preached in order to confirm what God already ordained. Listen to what God had already ordained. From Isaiah 6. You know, Isaiah 6, the vision Isaiah gets, he sees Jesus. If you have a question about that, I'd love to tell you later. Isaiah 6, he sees Jesus. Maybe I'll just explain it while we're there. I don't know. In verse 8, heard the Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, we can stop right there, and you got all kind of wonderful ideas about the message, the gospel, the good news. Here's what he says, Isaiah, go and tell these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Yikes. Now, the good thing is, not only do we know that was prophesied by the Lord through Isaiah, but then John allows us into an episode with Jesus. John chapter 12 beginning in the middle of verse 36. Right in the middle of his ministry. I'm sorry for lack of context here. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, therefore, John says, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. I hope you're like super uncomfortable. 
But get this, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did he see? Christ. We have a word here. God has told us that this people will reject the gospel. But you know, just like these brothers understood, just like Paul and Barnabas said, hey, we're not going to sit here and belabor the point. It was necessary that we speak to you the word of God, even though we know. We know what he has said. By and large, the Jewish people will reject the gospel. It really takes, though, Holy Spirit discernment to know when it is time to, as they go on to do it, dust off our shoes and move on. For, for Paul, because of the prophetic word, their unbelief is a foregone conclusion. This doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that Paul is, is like emotionless about the situation. Doesn't mean that Paul is unburdened. You know what he said later, Romans, he said, look, I wish I myself could be accursed so that my people could be saved. Nevertheless, he knew. He knew. And he also tells us that there will be a, a regrafting back in. A future engrafting. I'm sure he longs for that day. But now it's Gentile time. I want to make a note here, though. Moving on, because I don't want you to misunderstand me, moving on in mission does not mean giving up. As I told you, Paul maintains his practice of going to the synagogue. He maintains that because he's so desirous of the Jews' salvation. There may be those people in your life that, man, they're constantly opposed to the gospel. And at some point you have to say, look, God has given me a ministry to more than just this person. And so maybe I direct some or most of my energies elsewhere while I maintain prayer and look for the opportunities to continue to call these people to repentance even when their hearts are only proving to be hard. The missionaries go on and say, since you thrust the word of God aside, judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Understand what they mean here. To sidestep the call of God's word to repentance and faith is, according to this verse, a self-judgment. Believers, it is just the case that some people will hear the gospel and through the most prideful and irrational thought processes end up consigning themselves to everlasting hellfire. And while we grieve, we rest. Salvation is a work of the Lord. Like Paul and Barnabas rested here in the fact that saving is in God's hands. Meanwhile, the mission must continue Paul and Barnabas then state God's, God's turn to the Gentiles. 
He quotes Isaiah 49, 6, uh, uh, a prophetic word about God's servant. We know who his servant is. Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Isaiah's prophecy is not just about the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus himself. It was also about our commission, and Paul understood this as a command from God to go to the Gentiles. Paul was not deeply concerned. He knew what was coming. He was not deeply concerned about the response of the Jewish listeners. It's almost as if he shared with them God's intentions for global salvation and let them simply respond how they would. Now, here's where I think we get caught up in sort of the what ifs of mission. We're constantly concerning ourselves with things that are not under our control. What if they don't like what I say? What if it makes our relationship awkward or weird? What if they think I'm fanatical? Say things like, well, I'm I'm sure they wouldn't want to be disturbed. Why can't we leave those things up to God? Why can't we leave those things up to God? Stop overthinking your mission. Stop overthinking your gospel engagement. We've got to be far more comfortable with letting God do his job. Think about the farmer. The farmer doesn't withhold the seeds for fear that the ground is not quite right for the season or it'll, it'll be less productive this year, so I just won't plant anything. No, that wouldn't make any sense. You plant a seed hoping and expecting and, and praying that there will be produce, that there will be a harvest. So the farmer plants Believing there will be a harvest. We must plant. Believing there will be a harvest. And if we take our Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, planting and planting and planting. Hey, Lord, Lord, what's going on? And yet he planted and he planted and he planted. Paul would say, hey, somebody plants, somebody waters. Who is it that gives the increase? God. So stop reasoning yourself. Stop overthinking yourself out of mission. Urge hearers toward God's grace. Rest in God's saving work. Thirdly, watch the gospel spread. Verses 48 and 49. Watch the gospel spread. You can imagine how the jealousy of the Jews at the same time meant joy for the Gentiles. You think about Paul's words. He actually says, he says, God sent the gospel to the Gentiles to make Jews jealous. Wild. Joy for the Gentiles. You're telling us that this is for us? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I remember first time I ever won anything. Okay? I don't know what kind of little fair it was, maybe like a nation's fair or something like that. When I was in, 
elementary school, Dogwood Elementary, fifth grade, Germantown. And, and I remember putting my name in this little drawing. And um, the, you know, it was like a fishbowl or something, typically, typically what you would do. Put your name on a piece of paper and put it in this drawing. And then I remember being in class and hearing my name called on the loudspeaker in the classroom. And I remember if I even knew what was going on. But I got called to the main office and they handed me, you're going to think this is crazy, the most obscure sort of gift. It was a book that taught you how to speak Italian. <laughs> it was entitled, My World in Italian. And I learned to count from one to ten in Italian. Probably learned some other words, but forgot them all by now. I can still count to ten in Italian. It's kind of like Spanish. At least one to ten is. Uh... But man, I remember that book, and I remember walking into the office, and they say, you won. And I didn't care what the gift was. I was just like, man, I won? Of all these people that could have won this essentially useless book for me, I won. But do you, do you see that to those desperate for salvation, feeling the weight of their own sin and failure, the good news of the gospel comes with immeasurable joy. And that's exactly how they responded. Immediate rejoicing, Luke records, glorifying the word of God. And then we're hit with this statement that reminds us of the God-centeredness of salvation, that salvation belongs to the Lord. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And now you're getting both sides of this. They were appointed to be blind and deaf to the gospel, the Jews. And then we see Gentiles who were, as it says, appointed to eternal life, and they believed. That word appointed is a passive verb, which means somebody else is appointing the people to believe. And it's not me, and it's not you, and it's not Paul that does the appointing. This is exclusively the work of God. And look. I don't stand before you as somebody who comprehends how all this works. Don't hear that. What I do want to tell you is that we don't have to comprehend it, but we must accept that the doctrine of election is Bible doctrine. And yet, and the magnificent, if I can even call it the mind of God, these things do not work against someone's responsibility to believe. I've said it numerous times, I'll say it again. There is not one person who was 
dragged kicking and screaming into heaven because they didn't want to go there. And there is not one person in hell that is there because, oh, but I wanted to believe and I just couldn't. No, they did not believe and they did not want Christ. They hated him. And in God's economy, all that is in, is in perfect working order. So Luke allows us to see willful unbelief of the Jews that God had appointed and willful belief of the Gentiles that God had appointed. It says here, and the, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Paul and Barnabas, man, sit back and watch. I know sometimes we get too comfortable with not seeing many people saved. Just watch. Just watch. Let us be found faithful to the task of evangelism and disciple making and just watch. Put your hands to the plow and don't look back. Just watch. Sow the seeds. Tend the fields. Water as you have opportunity. But just watch. For in due season, we will reap. If we do not give up. Just watch. You know, it it may feel like we're in a season and it appears to be the Lord's good will. But it may feel like we're in a season of souls kind of trickling into the kingdom now. But can we press into the Lord in prayer and on mission with the full expectation that the season will come for a great harvest of souls? Watch the gospel spread. Fourthly, fourth instruction, welcome obstacles with joy. Welcome obstacles with joy. Verses 50 to 52. You see, the spread of the gospel is bad news for the kingdoms of darkness, and so the opponents rally themselves They do their best to put a stop to it. Jewish historians like Josephus tell us that there were Gentile women who'd become proselyte Jews, so converted to Judaism. And they had significant status. These are the ones that were inciting persecution along with, we learned, the leading men of the city. Yet, what did they do? They only fueled the fire of the gospel with persecution. They may have run the missionaries out of town, but the greatest message the world had ever heard was on its way to turning the world upside down. The missionary response was one taught by Jesus. He said in Luke 10, verses 10 and 11, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go in its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So Paul and Barnabas, they shake off the dust, just like you would shake off the dust to your feet 
going into your house. They shake off the dust. Ironically, as Pole Hill notes, shaking the dust off was something that many Jews did after they entered and came back from a Gentile territory. They didn't even want Gentile dirt on their shoes. So now, these Christian missionaries shake off the unholy dust from the Jewish synagogue, the dust of unbelief, the dust of rejection. They shake that dust off their feet. All the while, Gentile names are being added to the book of life. A little persecution would not stop them because once unleashed, gospel work is unstoppable. So Paul and Barnabas, along with all the new Gentile converts, were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, neither of which can be taken away. All right, we've heard about mission as a missionary now very briefly, and this is the conclusion. Mission two ways, the second way as a hearer. And I'll give you the same four points as four please. This is for those who do not have the assurance of salvation. You know you have not publicly professed Jesus Christ as Lord. You have many questions about what would happen to you if you died now. Here's the please, four please. First off, continuing God's grace. God's grace brought you to this point. So are you willing to let go of your own ideas about salvation? I am no salesman, okay? If I were a salesman, my family would would starve. Neither did God call me to be a peddler of the gospel. And my confession is, I don't know just the right thing to say, just the right words to say. And honestly, I'm thankful I don't have that crutch to lean on. And in my own frailty and often fumbling words, I don't know really of another way to say it. God's grace in Jesus Christ is your only hope to be saved. And otherwise, you are under the condemnation of hell. I don't know that that even requires any eloquence. He's revealed your sin, your rebellion, your unbelief up to now. You know to respond in repentance and faith if you have heard me before. And so the question is, will you finally let go of your pride and confess that Jesus is Lord? Continuing God's grace. Second plea, don't be a formality in mission. Don't be a formality in mission, just like these Jews. To harden your heart against the gospel brings you ever closer to becoming a mere formality. Just a step for us who believe toward those who will be saved. In the end, we missionaries, we Christians will be able to say about many, hey, we preached the gospel to them as we were supposed to but they did not want it. There are millions 
There are millions across the world without the gospel, but God chose to let you hear it. And the text says, they've judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. So the offer is extended to you, but will you actively embrace the condemnation of God rather than his free pardon in Christ through faith? Continue in God's grace. Don't be a formality in mission. Receive the good news with joy-filled faith. If you hear that call, that call of the gospel, the call to believe on Jesus and be saved, will you turn from sin and believe? What prevents you from doing as these Gentiles do? Gladly, rejoicingly receive the word of the Lord with faith. Finally, final plea, don't let the mission pass you by. I want to encourage you, we're not going to give up on you. But the scripture speaks to a time when after refusing the gospel repeatedly, the hard heart, as Hebrews says, is impossible to renew again to repentance. None of us can say exactly when that occurs. And really that ought to terrify you. So I'll ask the question as we conclude. I'll pray in just a moment, but would anyone be saved? Would you be saved today? Would you confess sin, repent of that sin, and believe on Jesus? I'll be right here, pray with you, encourage you. Saints, I'll be here for you too. As you consider that you are a missionary, unless you are an imposter. Let's pray, we'll respond. Father, your word is piercing to us. And we're thankful for its surgical work, the work that happens. in our own soul and spirit, in our own hearts, as you, through your word, discern our intentions. And Father, whether we like it or not, the word has spoken, and we must respond. And we know that we all will respond today. In some way, we are responding. We pray it would be a response that is empowered by the Holy Spirit that brings honor and glory to your matchless name. Help us now. Send your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for, please stand for our hymn of response, Wherever He Leads.